This is episode 277, entitled Running a Losing Race. And the opening music was from an early Tyrone Davis uh, R&B song, which I just find extraordinarily um, resonant and apt for um, life, and in particular my life. And I want to ruminate for just a few minutes here on um, the... um, um, advance of age, but I want to do it in such a way that is both accurate, at least accurate to my own experience and feelings, but also not um, a downer. In other words, a, a picture of the advance of the body's decline and the decline of life, you might say, at uh, older age, which I understand and feel, which is at the same time, rather than being a kind of a dis on uh, what you're actually doing and actually engaged in and actually feeling and actually aspiring to and actually contending against, that this would be a kind of a <clears throat> light in the forest in that Conrad Richter's uh, novel, a um, kind of a, a, a lodestar, a, a magneto, a, a something that uh, you can tie your star to as you grow in grace while growing in age, rather than, in other words, a downer. I want to first sketch out the facts and then um, 
talk a little bit about where the origins of hope are. What happens, um, you find this often in earlier age, and you'd be very fortunate if you did discover it almost always through a catastrophic reversal when you find the limitations of control. I mean, this is what Mockingbird talks about all the time, and it's what um, the heart of the gospel involves, and it's what AA got from the Christian faith, and it's a profound truth of life that you are uh, at your uh, profoundest diagnostically and even experientially when you realize the acute and ultimately um, total uh, lack of control that your ego and your ego person has, the Paul Zoll part of you, you might say, when you realize that, the sooner the better. But um, it happens to everyone automatically. And uh, I, I look at my own, you know, symptoms, the uh, the eyesight is all messed up. I had an operation that I should never have had that confused my eyes and my psyche in such a way that still impacts uh, everything I do. And I wear these glasses around myself. And I, every single time someone hugs me in church or in another situation, I have to say, oh, don't do it. You know, I'm like those obnoxious people that would always say, oh, don't get too close. I have the flu. And it was sort of their way of not hugging you <laughs> rather than the other way around. But um, I, people actually break my glasses routinely, break these glasses that I have to wear around my neck routinely uh, when they hug me because they just don't realize it. So I'm bound, and I have to always preface a, a hug with that um, admonition, which upsets me and seems pathetic. But that's a small thing, a hearing. I mean, I guess one has hearing aids, and they're wonderful. They're, I recommend them heartily. I should have gotten them 10 years ago. Nevertheless, they're constant little hassles with hearing aids that involve wax in the ears and two different elements that have to be frequently cleaned and scrubbed. And if they're not done the right way, the whole thing is out of commission and we live far away from my hearing person and you, you just it, it, it's a never-ending litany of problems but when you don't wear the hearing aids you honestly don't understand what the other person is saying you keep thinking they're mumbling and you accuse them of mumbling and they're not mumbling it's you are the problem so that that's old age but then there are far greater things a friend of mine who's a brilliantly buff um a man in middle years, brilliantly together in every single possible way, uh, from diet to exercise to training to look to spiritual vitality, etc., etc., recently had a, a genuinely almost life-ending and possibly will, I trust not, but a, a catastrophic accident in Route 95 and over in, in, a, in a mere second. His entire life has totally and forever altered, and he may conceivably never recover. He certainly won't recover fully, but he may recover. We're praying daily for him. Or another friend uh, who's my age exactly and uh, who I was uh, just had enormous fun with as an adolescent in school, um, fell off a ladder. Well, ridiculously, he should never have been on the ladder, but I do the same all the time. He got on the ladder and he fell off and he suffered damage to his brain, to his head that is colossal and um, has started unless reversed and we are doing all we can under God to reverse it a cycle, and et cetera, et cetera. And then you sort of, what happens is you begin to see, and also things in your life that are disappointments, or things that you worked all your life to prevent that have happened, or things that you worked all your life to sustain and are now dead, or things that you worked all your life to prosecute and are now defeated completely. I mean, I we were looking at, um, this is funny, to, to me it was bald and funny. We were looking at uh, the classic movie Palm Beach Story from 1942, which is a really outstanding movie, but I've always kind of avoided it because I find Preston Sturgis's attempts to intervene uh, on a 
genuinely stagey comedy with with um, a strong um, uh, slapstick to be tiresome. I've always found this to be true of his movies, but be that as it may, we watched it in someone else's very sincere recommendation and loved it because, primarily for me, it depicts a wedding, a beginning, a wedding at the beginning and the wedding at the end in which an Episcopal bishop, at essentially St. Bartholomew's Church, because that's in the background in one place in New York City, but an Episcopal bishop is presiding at a wedding uh, in an Episcopal church, and the bishop is dressed properly. He's wearing what we call rocher and shamir, but with no color. He's black, black. He's, he's dressed in black and white, the way bishops always dressed with um, a few outer space exceptions prior to 1979. And this bishop has dignity, and even though the, it's a comedy, um, the bishop has dignity and quiet and majesty and a profound sense of simplicity and then I look at that movie, which shows a, an Episcopal minister slash bishop uh, presiding at a wedding, uh, and and yet, uh, do, you, do you take a picture of Episcopal bishops today? This may sound like nothing to you, but it matters, actually, because it's simply emblematic of, of Ousson les Neiges d'Antan, because this, um, this uh, today, bishops look, I mean, they look absurd. They, they look ridiculous. They're, they're all wearing mitres, which, let me repeat, they never wore prior to 1979, except in very exceptional cases. Because remember, in those days, the Episcopal Church was 80% low church and, and, and broad in, in uh, perspective theologically and social progressivism, but liturgically 80% low, and then maybe 15% high. And every uh, city since about 1890 had one high church parish, uh, every, and but then had 20 low church parishes. So a bishop just never wore a mitre. He never wore, or she, to say the least, never wore a ecclesiastical colored vestments. They wore uh, Episcopal robes, which were from the Reformation, had always been the same. So uh, an Anglican bishop in the Church of England in 1590 looked exactly the same way an Episcopal bishop in New York City looked in 1968. And yet then overnight it changed. And it's, uh, it's, whether it's Night of the Living Dead, or whether it's the most ridiculous, flouncy kind of, um, you know, people trying too hard, looking ridiculous. It's all like the Princess Bride. Now, Episcopal bishops, they all look like sort of poor uh, and rather unprofound escapees from the Princess Bride if you remember what I'm referring to, or sort of space balls. They look like a bishops in space balls. Well, there's, there's, no, um, there's no dignity. It's all fashion. It's all absurd. It's all uh, some kind of strange attempt to be Catholic while not being Catholic. It's, it's uh, bizarre. But the point being that I look at that and I say, you know, well, well um, I'm running a losing race. I mean, you spend all your life trying to highlight one particularly... Uh, spiritually alive tradition within one branch of Christianity, and and the other has taken over ninety five point nine percent. And so you say to yourself, "What?" And you say, "Oh, he's being bitter." Well, it's not bitterness; it's truth. I mean, I look at um, the Palm Beach story, and I compare it with any uh, consecration today of, of an Episcopal bishop. And I mean, give me a royal. I mean, are you out of your mind? It just it just shows you that what the author of Ecclesiastes said. You know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All is change. All is passing away. Um, it's like the uh, chaff which the wind blows away. There's there's no continuity. There's nothing going. A friend of mine, a lovely retired professor here in Connecticut, said the other day that he was a Burkean conservative. And I said, "Are there any? Are you kidding me? You're a you're a political scientist. Are there any Burkean conservatives? Were there ever in academic departments of uh, political science?" He said, "Well, maybe three. I mean, <laughs> and that was 50 years ago." Um, 
the uh, point being that you look at life, uh, especially in light of the advance of age and uh, the fact that you are suddenly incredibly vulnerable to time and tide, let alone chance. Uh, and um, I always think of that movie Lifeguard, that beautiful movie with what's his name? Is it Tom Selleck? I can't remember. Um, no, it's not Tom Selleck. It's somebody else. But anyway, the uh, time and tide, time and tide, um, uh, the um, avalanche of life and uh, mortality and physical illness and, trans and transience. The uh, the uh, tidal wave, the tsunami of the sandstorm. There's a wonderful uh, um, uh, science fiction artist, I forget his name actually at the moment, who did a lot of covers of pulp uh, sci-fi magazines mainly uh, and a few books in the 40s and 50s. And he has one famous one. You'd recognize it if you saw it. And it's of, a, of astronauts on a landing on a, a planet, which is entirely Saharan sands. It's all a desert. But you see as a viewer that, that there's a finger and there's an eye that's about to open that is underneath the sands. In other words, there's a very, there's a very real dormant being, gigantic in size on the surface of this planet that totally dwarfs the spaceship from the United States Space Colony Exploration uh, and um, nobody sees it, uh, but it's been covered over by um, a, a sandstorm. And that's true of, uh, remember uh, Ozymandias and Lo? Ozymandias statue has been, who was the great king, and um, he's now covered by sand and the lone and level sand stretched far away. And that's, uh, is it Shelley? It's the sonnet on the transience of power of trends, of significance. So my question to you is, I mean, you may say, well, I don't want to hear about <coughs> the sands of time and <coughs> my efforts and my loves and my hopes and my dreams, <coughs> daka, and all that. I don't want to see that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're pouring cold water on something that is sincere and aspiring and youthful and hopeful and engaged. And who gave you the right to pour cold water? And I would agree with you. I would agree with you. So where is the hope in what I'm saying? Is there hope? I'm going to conclude with a with something that reflects the hope, both in its author and its uh, music. But um, the hope is uh, in the Holy Spirit, which gives us uh, streams of living water, even in the end. Uh, there's uh, Mary and I were talking about this the other day, and we could well imagine, we don't have to imagine it because we see it in our friends, and we certainly used to see it in our friends' aging parents. There'll be a time when Mary and I, either together or apart, or parallel, will be living in, each of us will be living in a tiny room about one-third the size of our very modest living room here in Connecticut, our very modest living room, and we'll be living in a room roughly one-third the size of it with a little bathroom, hopefully, that is private, and a few pictures of our children, or each other, God willing, that'll be the most important one, and our children and grandchildren, and maybe one other memento of something that matters to us, you know, what would that be? Invaders from Mars, 1956, I mean, whatever, you, you name it, some uh, knitting, some thing that I did that made, made that reminds me of somebody. Anyway, th that, that's all it's going to be. And uh, what'll, where will the hope be? Well, then we remembered Mary, with Mary, with the no question, she'll be still reading the Bible. And if not reading the Bible because of eyesight, um, 
she'll be praying. Mary is a prayer. She'll actually be having a kind of centering prayer moment and that's dedicated to our friend Nestor de Armas, who is so sick because of his accident. Uh, she'll, be, she'll be in prayer, literally in prayer, for those she loves, our daughters-in-law, our sons, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And I hope I'll be along the lines, not as profound as Mary and not as hopeful, but hopefully something that will be comparable in my own way to her sense of ultimate giving over to God, who is above and beyond and through and betwixt. What is the, that Jimmy Webb line? You always uh, put me between your scenes. Well, uh, the, whoever the God is of scenes, uh, I, I want to be between his scenes, in his scenes, still at age 90 or 85. Now, that's important. Uh, there's a scene in, uh, I think it's Medea's Family Reunion, the Tyler Perry movie from the year 2006, maybe, something like that, in which Cecily Tyson, who's now a, a, plays a much advanced grandmother figure, she's visited in the nursing home. She has kind of a, a what I guess we used to call it a cameo. She has a cameo, and she's being visited by Medea, I think, or if not, that Medea, Tyler Perry, as the younger sort of grandson, visits his grandmother, as I recall, in the nursing home. And Tyler Perry has very powerfully edited the sequence in which the first thing you see as Cecily Tyson is being visited is this large black Bible, which is on her sort of little kind of movable tray table at the arm of the chair she sits in most of the day. She's reading her Bible, and it's so touching, and this woman is clearly sustained and fed and lived in through that, and I was thinking, you know, where do I see hope? Where do I see life? Well, I see it in the pictures I've told you about Mary and Cecily Tyson, and hopefully a picture of me involved in the same kind of a vertical enterprise because the love never ends and the uh, fountain of the spirit is eternally bubbling as St. John tells us. I also look at certain individuals that carry this. Now, you're going to be, you're going to flip when I, when I say this and don't, don't take it personally, but the current president of the United States, whatever you think of him, and I'm, you're entitled, you're completely entitled. I'm not trying to shut you down, but whatever you think of the current president of the United States, he's a little bit like one of those, you know, uh, puppets on a spring. You remember that kind? You'd, or or a, one of those egg, egg a, a puppet on a round a, a, a clown on a rounded uh, sort of surface, and you push the clown over, and he goes over all the way, uh, you know, at uh, 90 degrees, but then he pops right back up. Uh, he, he, then you push him again, and he pops right back up, or you pull the, you push the, the thing down on a spring, and then you let it go, and it pops right back up again. Um, whatever you may think of uh, the personality involved, or his ideas, or self-expression, whatever you do. There's something about this remarkable um, uh, popping back up, this sort of uh, elan vital of that uh, person that is uh, extraordinary no matter how you want to put it. I mean, no matter what you think of it, it's, it's to, to me, there's an element of inspiration because it simply means that, you, you know, it call, it's called irrepressibility. And uh, I don't have it. I'm a, Stuart Gerson says I have a glass jaw and I tend to, I give up very, very quickly. You say no and I say, okay. Um, somebody I know here too much is always telling me if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. You know, and I'm not that kind of guy. Maybe you are. Um, but um, I give up after being, re- rejection to me is direction, to quote Pastor Paul again. But there's something about this person we're talking about very briefly, the irrepressibility of it that gives me hope that maybe a human being could, at least under God, be irrepressible. In some sense of what is called the true self or the soul, the same goes for um, Pastor Paula. I mean, she's had a tremendous amount. She's had a tremendous amount of catastrophe. I mean, real big time 
um, wipeout, you know, in her life. And yet, as her new book, which I recommend very highly, called Something Greater, I think it's called. I wrote a blurb for it. I love the book. It's a fabulous book. But this personality at age 54 or 53, whatever it is she is now, she has a kind of God-given optimism and uh, confidence in the goodness and the hopefulness and the power and the dynamism of God for all and sundry at all ages and at all times and in all catastrophes and in all blockages and in all moments of complete inertia, lethargy, and defeat, challenge, and tsunami and sandstorms that uh, is uh, unbelievably powerful. So I leave that with you. I see it in those particular personages, whatever you may think, uh, of, of the actual substance of the person. The style is remarkable. And secondly, I see it in Cecily Tyson in Medea's Family Reunion. And I would call it out as something that I aspire to, even while I have to admit the actual truth that you face, as I am beginning to see and actually experience, a kind of tidal wave of total and complete whiteout or wipeout in relationship to the life I uh, lead. Now I'm going to close by a new track from Greg Townsend, who plays with Liz Straightjackets. You may not know about him, but he's a remarkable guitarist, pop rock independent guitarist from Rochester, New York, and uh, he's covering here in his new album, uh, I think it's called Traveling Guitar, he's covering um, a song by Morrissey, I think it's called There Is A Light That Never Goes Out, and it's a song you all have heard, but the um, the refrain about halfway through it uh, interjects a high degree of inspiration and positivity in uh, a song that otherwise um, is looking at the depressed darkness of so much until the light that never goes out comes. I hope you like the song and I like you. God bless. 